I don't know about you, but I love to be in a church where we can sit silently and experience the fear of God, the awe of God. We can dance. We can have children singing loudly and beautiful. Beautifully, we can have people marching around, praying. God is doing something, and I'm telling you, you better watch out. God is up to something. I was just sensing the Lord saying he's weaponizing our love. And I pictured all of us coming together, and we came together as one, and we became a sword. And so I'm not sure exactly what all that means, but the Lord is weaponizing us. And there's something powerful about intimacy and closeness and tenderness. And it's striving free. We love him and our enemies are routed. We draw near to him. We say, show us your glory. And all the forces of hell cannot stand against us. Is that right? That is right. So... This morning, I want to invite us to behold the beauty of the Lord. If you want to look in your Bible, we'll have a slide in a a moment here. Psalm 27. I want to remind us that our Lord's is a community on mission with Jesus. We get to partner with Jesus as he's building his church and bringing his kingdom. It's an exciting and envisioning time for us as a church, isn't it? Now, we do embody a variety of gifts and perspectives here. It's a wonderful thing. But we're unified around a shared passion for worship, spiritual formation and equipping, and mission, as Mike talked about last week. In short, we're a church committed to the great commandment and the great commission. We're called to love God, to love our neighbors, and to go and make disciples of the nations. And that's what we stand for here. As we've been seeing in recent weeks, this current series on prayer reminds us that all that we are and all that we do is rooted in prayer. Mike was praying this morning as we circled up before the service and said, Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. John 15. But then Philippians 4 says, with you, we can do all things. And so prayer reminds us of that, right? We're not just going to get involved in activism and become, we are contemplative people. We're prayerful people. So in this season as a community, when the Lord is mobilizing all of us, everyone, let me just ask you right now, reach, put your hand on your heart. Is your heart beating? Is there lung, are your lungs functioning? You're in the team. You're on. If your heart is beating, you're getting to contribute. All hands on deck, right? So here at Our Lords, we're a people of prayer. Whatever activity we're engaged in, parenting at home, teaching, studying at school, working in a business place, we're going deeper and deeper into prayer as a people, individually and collectively. I know many of you are. I've been getting emails, phone calls, speaking with you about this. So what we're doing in these weeks is we're working our way through different parts of the Bible, looking at significant moments of prayer. And today we're going to look at Psalm 27. 
And then for a few weeks, we're actually going to take different psalms. We're going to take Psalm 27. We're going to take Psalm 63. We're going to take Psalm 119 and just look at three psalms over the next few weeks. So a word about what the psalms are. Psalms are amazing. One thing is the psalms have served as the prayer book for Jews and Christians for about 3,000 years. So there's something rich and perennial that speaks through the psalms. Secondly, how many psalms are there? Got some Baptists in here, some Bible bowlers. How many psalms? 150. They're divided into five books. So the collector of the psalms was making a statement, bringing these different psalms together, tying them to the Pentateuch. And what's the Pentateuch? The first five books of the Bible. So the Psalms actually reflect the broader story of the love of God and the restoration plan of God that's unfolding. The Psalms are amazing. There's richness there. Thirdly, the Psalms tell us much about how to interact with God. This Old Testament scholar I like Many of them are the frozen chosen. This gentleman is not. His name is Walter Brueggemann. He's in Georgia, and he loves the Psalms. He writes books on the Psalms. And listen to what he says about the book of Psalms. For generations, faithful women and men turned to the Psalms as a most helpful resource for conversation with God about things that matter most. The Psalms are dialogical or conversational literature, revealing both sides of prayerful conversation. What do you mean by that, Brueggemann? First, the Psalms show faithful speech addressed to God. And secondly, as Martin Luther understood, the Psalms are the voice of the gospel to the church. That's what the Psalms give us. So what this Old Testament theologian is saying is that the Psalms are really a model for us. How to express words to God, raw and real, and how to receive words from God. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to read the Psalms. Anyone else? So the book of Psalms is like a school of prayer. And these prayers and songs, we're going to look at three of them, teach us how to interact with God. And as we'll see, David didn't have an easy life, so he's writing some really nitty-gritty things in these psalms as he's interacting with God. So they're going to teach us things about receiving the love of God into our hearts. As I was looking at this psalm this week, spending time with it, I actually saw an image, saw a vision over our church, and it was a large banner a flag, and on it was written Psalm 27. I think there's something in Psalm 27 for us as a church, so we're going to look at that. I've asked Ruth and Smokey to come up. Ruth is going to read Psalm 27 for us as they come up here. She can use that, or I can hand her this microphone. A bit of background on Psalm 27. 
right? It's always important to know historical context, isn't it? David is being chased by King Saul. He's being pursued, not to get a hug, but to kill him. So there's a manhunt on for him, and he's hiding out in the desert. He's hiding out in caves. And so I want you to think about that. Situate Psalm 27 in that kind of context. He is being hunted down because Saul is jealous of him. And Saul knows that he's the next king. Want to read Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rises up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says. Come, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Thank you. That is the word of God. Ruth, you might have some emails and calls, people wanting you to come and do house calls to read scripture to them. Maybe a new ministry. I know you're learning to uh, put up with some of my fascination with early church people. Oftentimes they said it the best. And one of my favorites, this fiery Greek theologian from the fourth century 
says something about Psalm 27. This guy's name is Athanasius. He loved Jesus. But he says this about Psalm 27. If you experience the harsh and forceful attacks of the enemy and they crowd against you, despising you as one who is not anointed as they did David, do not succumb to these attacks, but sing Psalm 27. So this morning, I want us to let Psalm 27 sing to us. This psalm is centered on the beauty of the Lord, and it teaches us a couple things. And as we've been doing, we're just going to walk through this passage together and gaze upon the Lord's beauty in the Word of God. The first thing that Psalm 27 teaches us is that prayer begins with declaring confidence in God. And then secondly, we'll see flowing out of that is that prayer seeks help from God. So this is a model of prayer. Let's look at it. Verses one through three, again, David is showing us in this amazing prayer that prayer begins with praise and confidence in God. Church, we pray from a place of victory, don't we? There's no groveling, no trying to get God's attention. God's eyes are riveted on us, and that's how prayer begins. We declare who you are. The first thing that David says there as he's declaring the praise of God, he praises the Lord's protection in verses 1 through 3, and he begins to go to the races in his love for the Lord, showing it. He says, Lord, in verse one, you are my light and my salvation. This is a major theme in the Psalms. Psalm 36, Psalm 43, talk about it. For us, we can simply go over and flick a light switch on. Light doesn't mean much. What did it mean in the ancient world? A whole lot. A simple fire, a torch. Think about it. David is in the desert, in caves, being pursued. His life is on the line. So each daybreak is key for him. So what he's saying, as his enemies are literally crawling to find him and hunt him down, he's saying, Lord, you're my light. You're the daybreak. You illuminate my darkness. You protect me. The wild animals, the jackals and others out here at night. Lord, you illumine my darkness. My Bible's too big. It's a good problem, isn't it? So first, praising the Lord's protection. Talks about this. And he's saying in these first three verses, whom shall I fear? No one. It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Whom shall I fear? No one. David fears God alone. At verse 2, he begins to talk briefly about his evildoers and adversaries in the presence of God as his eyes are riveted on the glory of God. He says, Lord, they want to eat me alive. Perhaps David was remembering what Goliath told him earlier. Goliath told David, I'm going to cut you into pieces, little guy. 
and the birds are going to come and eat you. So perhaps David is feeling that way again. There's other people pursuing him. His life is on the line. But he says, what happens when I begin to praise and declare who you are? My enemies stumble and fall. They're going to fall flat on their faces. He says at verse 3, though an army encamp against me, though war rise up against me, I will be confident. Now, some of us can say this figuratively, right? It was literal for David. He literally had people coming against him, armies of men, war rising up against him. And what does he say? David, are you crazy? I'm confident. So in battle, physically and spiritually, David is confident in his Lord, in God. Think about other Psalms. David is unreal. Psalm 23, he talks about what happens in the presence of his enemies. The Lord prepares a table for me. David has insight into something. So here he is again in the presence of his enemies, and he's saying, Lord, I'm confident. You're getting ready to spread a table before me, and the table is you. The table is your glory, your presence. So he's confident and calm. This is the real heart of the psalm, the second thing that he prays in this first section here. He praises the Lord's beauty. Look at verse 4. This is the essence of the psalm, and I would argue one of the holy of holies in the entire Psalter. All 150 psalms, what you're reading right here is stunning. David says, one thing I asked, and it's past, right? So he's saying, I've been asking for this for years. And then what does he say? He says, but I'm going to continue to seek it. I will seek this one thing. I couldn't help but remember this week as I was looking at David's one thing. I couldn't help but remember what Jesus said in Luke 10. Mary and Martha are there. Martha's real busy waiting on Jesus. And what does Jesus tell Martha? Only one thing is necessary. Mary's got got it right. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. So David is saying the same thing a thousand years before Christ. One thing, Lord, one thing am I asking for and seeking. And he begins to talk about dwelling in the Lord's house, the Lord's temple, the Lord's shelter, the Lord's tent. One commentator says David ransacks the Hebrew language. He's looking for every word he possibly can. This guy is obsessed the house, the temple, the shelter, the tent. What does all this signify? Nice construction? Nice architecture? No. What's housed there? The Lord. So David is saying, Lord, I am completely head over heels obsessed with your presence. And I want this how long? For a season? Until I get through this difficult time? How long is it, church? all the days of my life, all the time, in all circumstances, including this battle for my life right now. When he begins to talk about what he really wants to do while he's in that temple, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to contemplate, to prayerfully gaze. How many of you Behold a show on Netflix. 
Anyone? One of your, some of you might say, well, what does behold mean, Brock? That's rather mystical or unusual. It's really not. You are a creature designed to behold. And when you put your favorite show on, you behold it. You're looking at every character, every nuance. You might like that person's voice. You are beholding something. David is saying here, I'm doing the same thing. I am riveted on the glory, the beauty, the nature of God. And I cannot get enough of this. The Apostle Paul talks about this for New, new Covenant people. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, he takes this concept that David is talking about here and ramps it up. He says that the church, baptized believers, are filled with the Holy Spirit, a spirit that helps us contemplate the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus. You and I are created to contemplate, created to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. If this gets in your bloodstream a little bit, you're done. Addictions that have, ha have had a hold of you for years, you know what happens? They fall off. The Lord plucks them out because you are gazing on the most glorious, beautiful, powerful being in the universe. David's love was weaponized. His contemplation was weaponized. Something powerful. Amanda and I were talking about this passage this week, and she brought in some nursing terminology and some psychology. She, she said, this is a fight or flight moment here. And I can't believe where David goes. He goes to the beauty of the Lord. In the crucible of this moment, he says, Lord, I want you. Here I am in the darkness of a cave. 30 people are after me. They're encamped out there, and I want your beauty. I want to gaze upon your beauty. So intimacy is warfare. We were feeling that this morning, weren't we? So intimacy in warfare for David, but intimacy is warfare for us. There's this amazing story of this four-square gospel preacher. Some of you may have heard this before. His name was Pastor Dick Mills. He tells a story many times of oftentimes he was in spiritual attack, and he would find a room. He would take two chairs, set them across from one another, and he would say, enemy, come sit down in this chair right here. You're going to watch me worship. I remember the first time I heard that story, I thought, wow, something about the heart of David that Pastor Mills had. Now, the, the point is not to taunt the enemy. Do we ever taunt the enemy? Of course not. That's foolish. But what's the point of that story? That we worship in the face of spiritual attack. The enemy comes after you, anxiety, lust, depression, same old addiction, you can pull up a chair, say, you know what? I'm going to worship my way out of this. I'm calling on the one thing that David longed for, the beauty of the Lord. You do that day in, day out. It's not a week. 
You do this over time. It will change the core of who you are. So thank you, David, for writing these words for us. A third thing in this first section here is that we praise the Lord for the Lord's deliverance. Very quickly, David talks in verses five through six about being hidden and concealed by the Lord. Amanda asked me, how is this different than protection? And I had to read into this passage here. He's not just hidden, he's not just concealed, but what? He's set on high. He's lifted up above his enemies. So I think the psalm is showing us that as we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we're lifted up. The Lord always preserves us in battle, but there comes a time when gazing upon the beauty of the Lord lifts you out of it so that you can look down on your enemies and you can say, Lord, in spite of me, you brought me through. You brought me through. Before we look at the next section here, I, I want to give a brief word not only to our prayers, but our worshipers, our singers, others. We were doing this this morning. If we will rivet our attention on the Lord and get out of our own belly buttons. Anybody else? I, I come oftentimes on Sunday and I am a really good navel gazer. Lord, I've got plenty to worry about. Woe is me. And all of a sudden it becomes worship about how pitiful I am. How pathetic my circumstances are. And so if we will lift and look up, it'll change everything. It'll change us individually. It will change the way we worship. And I'm excited about what the Lord's going to be doing in the coming months out of this place right here. Brad Kilman, Chris, others are going to be writing songs about beholding the beauty of the Lord. We're going to have new songs coming, and people are going to sing them all over the place. Second section here, as we keep before us beholding the beauty of the Lord, is prayer for help. So verses 7 through 14, let's look at this. The first thing at verse 7 David prays for is the Lord's grace, just like we were singing this morning. He knows the Lord is gracious, doesn't he? All the scriptures, we saw it in Exodus 33 and other places when the Lord passes by Moses. When the Lord shows up, it's always goodness. It's always grace. It's always love. The Old Testament reveals that and so does the New Testament. So David is saying, you are the gracious God who hears, help me. He only begins to ask for help after he's declared who God is. The second thing here is that he prays in verses 8 through 9 for the Lord's face. I told you he was obsessed, didn't I? He can't get away from it. He comes back to it. Lord, I'm starting to request things here, and I can't get away from your presence, your glory. Is this interesting to you? When he's saying, my heart says, seek his face. I think David has preached to his heart for years. 
the Lord really is good. The Lord really will deliver you. The Lord is beautiful. And now what happens? His heart begins to talk back to him. His heart is cooperating and turning him to the Lord. His heart is saying, David, seek the face of the Lord. And he says, Lord, I will seek your face. The Hebrew word for face is presence. So anytime we see the word face, we know that it is the intimate presence of God that's being talked about here. A third thing in this section that David is praying about, and this one is stunning. I heard some of you actually respond to it when Ruth read it. It's prayer for the Lord's parental love. David says, if I'm forsaken, if I'm abandoned by my parents, you will take me up. You'll take me in. You'll bring me into your family. David knows that the Lord is the most tender, reliable parent anyone could ever have. David writes about it in other places. Psalm 18, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is fierce. But then he'll turn around and write in Psalm 131, the Lord has the tenderness of a mother. So David knows the strength, the beauty, the tenderness of the Lord with him in this moment. And we know that good parenthood flows from the being of God, doesn't it? So as those created in the image of God, we're able to be good parents because God is the supremely good parent. And David is singing about that and writing about that here. There's a story of someone named Dory Van Stone. She's actually written a book called The Girl Nobody Loved. I got to meet Dory 30 years ago, and she tells this stunning account of how her 21-year-old mother left her at an orphanage. She was six years old. At the orphanage, she was beaten daily by the matron. She was so covered in hate and self-rejection, she didn't want to live. She said over and over again in her book, I felt ugly and unloved. Nobody loved me. She longed to be hugged so much that at night she would wrap her arms around herself and cry herself to sleep. She did it for years. Nobody loved her. She couldn't find love anywhere. At age 13, a group of college students came to the orphanage where Dory lived And these college students said, God loves you. And she said it hit her like a rock between the eyes. It just hit her and changed her right there on the spot. She had never heard it. Never heard that God loved her. So that night, she got in bed. She said, God, nobody loves me. If you do, you can have me right now. I'm desperate. She said, I may not have prayed the right prayer. But a wave of love came over me. I experienced the love of God and I was changed right there at age 13. Make a long story short, Dory ended up getting adopted, working in a doctor's household, went to college, married a man named Lloyd, had two kids, served as a missionary to Papua New Guinea, continues to work with orphans. They call her an ambassador for orphans. So the Lord is, as David says here, the most amazing parent. And Dory Van Stone experienced that. What a beautiful story, the God's redemptive love. 
As we end here, I want to point out a couple of other things in this second section. David prays for the Lord's guidance. He's saying, teach me, Lord. You're beautiful. Teach me. Lead me on a level path. Then he says in verse 13, he comes back to goodness. He says, I believe that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Many people say, what is the land of the living? Believe it or not, it's actually an idiom or a phrase that speaks of the temple. David is coming back to the temple again. And he's saying, I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in this sacred place here. I'm going to go and behold the beauty of the Lord. I think for David, he experienced it to such an extent that what happened there in the temple became the land of the living wherever he went. He knew wherever God is, and I'm tuned in to the beauty of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. I am in the land of the living. He ends this psalm here with a prayer for the Lord's strength. I want us to look at this. What's he say? He says, wait for the Lord. The order is important here. And then what happens? Be strong. Then strength comes. And then what happens? Then your heart takes courage. Wait is a four-letter word for some of us, isn't it? I hate waiting. Jack Kilman and I were talking about this. I hate waiting for stop signs, stop lights. I hate waiting on people. I hate waiting in line. And David is saying here, wait on the Lord. This is something we've got to practice, learning to wait, to look longingly, expectantly for the Lord. So this week, I'm going to ask you to spend some time with Psalm 27, to follow David's model of praise This week, to look at these six verses in the beginning and say, Lord, teach me about your beauty. And then in 7 through 14, Lord, teach me how to pray. Knowing that you indeed are beautiful and good and loving, I'm going to ask for things that flow out of your heart. Lord, we ask that you would take us deeper into what David knew here what he was rooted in. Lord, I ask for a spirit of intimacy, a spirit of prayer to operate in us, for the grace of God to work mightily in us, that we would behold the beauty of the Lord and watch all that you can do. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We love you back. This morning, Lord, we love you back. We say you are beautiful, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is like you? Amen.